No need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. Happy days are here again, higher side chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and while we spend a lot of time talking about how backwards, unjust, and corrupt this sick Archon-inspired system is, the saddest part is that our collective imagination has been so thoroughly crushed that many people lack the vision to reflect on the small insights we do have into the what-could-be timeline and extrapolate out how full-blown amazing our reality could be if we could somehow reclaim what was taken from us. A mystical history, electrogravitic technologies, plasma physics, energy systems, proper nutrition, a well-developed consciousness, and a strong collective spirit of cooperation and exploration of a paradise now lost. If you ask me, it all deserves a little bit more than the lackluster collective shoulder shrug we tend to offer up as a reaction to the realization that our could-be utopia has been re-engineered into a dull, inspiration-deprived slave system. But by its design, we just don't have the energy to display more passion, let alone reclaim any ground. Although that might change if more of us stayed up to date with the work of today's returning guest, the semi-anonymous but real human Schwab. Because through his Substack masterpieces, he not only breaks down the nitty-gritty details of what's been done, rubbing our nose in it like a dog to a soiled rug, but he gives magnificent glimpses of the good timeline, and as if channeling Howard Beale himself, his writing relays a subtle undercurrent that before we can do anything, first we have to get mad. Well, I'm fired up already, so let's go. The Collective Intuition Whisperer, Lost World Reconstructor, and my favorite sage of Substack, the great and powerful Schwab. Welcome back, my good man. Glad to be here. That was, a, once again, an amazing introduction. It's an art form. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm psyched. Heck yeah, man. Me too. And I do very few things well, but intros do seem to be one of them. I appreciate you coming back. I really enjoyed the last one and felt like there was enough left to the cutting room floor to fill up another interview on top of the work you've done since. Plus, it just seemed to be exceptionally well-liked. I mean, of course, they're all my babies, but this one kind of struck a chord and I got tons of great feedback from people. I hope you can say the same. I sure can. I got a lot of feedback from that. I got a lot of new subscribers, a lot of people commenting saying, you know, I heard you on the higher side. So I was blown away, to be honest. Oh, amazing to hear. Amazing to hear. Yeah. So to kick this off, I wanted to go back to your very first post, which was about the Hindenburg. It's one thing to say that the Hindenburg disaster story has a lot of holes that make it seem in hindsight like a false flag from the robber baron oil-only cartel. But it's 
not about one airship or one incident. It's about an amazing technology that was stuffed back in the box with one dramatic display. To quote some lines from this piece, you write, by the end of 1936, Hindenburg had crossed the Atlantic 34 times, carrying over 3,500 passengers, and the ship's highly successful 1936 season seemed to indicate that regular transatlantic air service had arrived. Imagine a world in which luxury travel was not only available to everyone, but was also affordable. In its day, airship travel was twice as fast as steamship travel and didn't require one to spend days adjusting to the tossing and turning of the ocean. Safe and luxurious travel from Germany to America in under 50 hours. In 1937, the world lost an 800-foot-long floating platform that would move at 85 miles per hour and carried over 200,000 pounds of cargo and unlimited range. Airports and runways were not necessary. Cruising speed was three times faster than steamship. Not only are airships much more comfortable than modern flight, they were also much more fuel efficient than any modern jet airliner or vehicle. The Hindenburg was capable of flying around the world in 1936 without stopping for fuel. We were getting dangerously close to free energy travel. If that technology had been developed, standardized, and miniaturized, just imagine. Oh, man. So when I say your work channels Howard Beale's first I want you to get mad attitude, this is what I'm talking about. Because when you really have these details laid out, it's no small thing. And we should be mad. Yeah, you should be angry. I say later on in this piece that it's an entirely different timeline that diverges at the crash of the Hindenburg or the, you know, the psychological operation, whatever you want to call it, where if this kind of technology, and it's not just the Hindenburg itself, it's the spirit of that grand, elegant design mm. that we see that was lost from that golden era, the 1930s. It's that vision that was lost and it was pushed in this direction of more utilitarian and you know the sort of less human forms of travel just packing people in it's a whole way of being that we diverged from i was taking a look at some different kinds of campers they actually had this helicopter camper design for a while and that kind of idea of mobility of being able to take your family basically anywhere. If you had used dirigible technology to have portable mobile campers that could fly, I mean, it's a very safe technology. Imagine how great that would be. Yeah, for sure. And the point about the general spirit being extinguished is important too. Now it seems like we're experiencing a new level jump in the mobility limiting operation. They want us in smaller and smaller boxes. But back with the Hindenburg might be where the timeline went dark. And I'm just curious because this was German technology. It was the 1930s. How much of a factor was the geopolitical landscape at the time and how things went down? It's hard to say if it was anti-Nazi sentiment because there were so many elements at play at this point in history. You know, the guy that the famous coverage of the Hindenburg, this guy Herbert Morrison, 
he begins his coverage that day with an advertisement for American Airlines. Huh. Yeah, and there's definitely in the propaganda that came out afterwards that was the way that it was framed there were definite signs that there was a bit of competition going on there between the airlines and you know the lighter than air dirigible craft but there is an element there of geopolitical tension where the German side of the investigation, there is evidence that they did see that it was sabotaged. But rather than create an international incident out of it, they chose to go the other way and just go along with the accident narrative. Hmm. That's very curious to me because it seems like Yes, the oil oligarchy would have wanted to put the kibosh on this, but they don't really control the whole world. And it seems like, especially at that time, there could have been a block of nations that say, well, we're going to use this over here anyway. But you do note that 10 years prior to this, there was a ban on helium imports from the United States. And Germany hoped that they could just overcome that by showing how successful it is, how safe it is. And my understanding is that the actual Hindenburg was filled with hydrogen gas instead of helium because of that ban. Is that right? I mean, that seems like a strange element as well, which gas was used. Yeah, that gas is a uh, helium is a lot safer and it's a lot better. And that's part of the story is that control of the helium sort of changed everything. And the fact that, yeah, because of that ban, because of that America refusal to cooperate and share the, the helium reserves that we have, they had to go with the nitrogen. So that's definitely an element there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a very strange thing because trains derail, planes crash, steamships sink, but they all still get used. Something was different here, and the people were intentionally traumatized to fear this technology, but is there really anything stopping it from reemerging now other than the echoes of that trauma and the perception that it's not worth it? No, not at all. And there's a lot of people trying different things with dirigible technology right now, and there's absolutely nothing stopping people. I kind of try to push people to try this technology on a smaller scale and experiment with it because there's really nothing stopping people from doing that. If you look at how it was scaled up, it was how it started. It really was hobbyists, you know, hobbyist aviators building these things with their own just local funding. So I'm sure it's possible just to kickstart something and get it off the ground if you start on a small enough scale. That's what I'm interested in is the potential for it to be miniaturized and for it to be a personal lighter than aircraft. Not a one man thing, but something where you could you could live in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know how people like the van life thing? Yeah. Think about how much more elegant that would be if you could fly up into the Adirondacks or up to Alaska. 
the mobility of it. There's there are so many places just in Canada that are inaccessible because of the geography and lack of roads. And the same is true for Siberia. There's places all over the world that are still pristine and beautiful that could be accessed with that kind of technology. And it would be really economical. It's like you're talking about the, if you're just moving something the size of a Winnebago, you're talking about very low amount of fuel. It's very efficient. Most of the action, the work is being done by the lifting gas. Right. And people should really see the images that you have in this post because the plans, the blueprints, they show these luxury hotels in the sky, basically. I mean, think about a cruise ship. Of course, they're not luxury. If you've ever taken a cruise and had to eat that food, it's pretty miserable. It's kind of like a floating prison until you get to where you want to go. But at the time, with this vision, they were thinking pretty radical things about how people could travel around in the air. And it'd be great to reignite that. So much of your work is about how a lot of these things start in the mind and kind of condensing possibility in the mind. And, and this is just a great example of it. And to reiterate how well-established this was, you write, after more than 30 years of passenger travel on commercial Zeppelins, in which tens of thousands of passengers flew over a million miles on more than 2,000 flights without a single injury, the era of the passenger airship came to an end in a few fiery minutes with the Hindenburg disaster. And you go on to say, there are many questions surrounding the famous disaster. To get into that day itself, what are some of those questions? Okay, so first of all, there were, I don't know, something like 30 different photographers. There were about four different people taking film. There were all kinds of radio stations present. And the fact that there was such a huge media presence really didn't make sense. There had been many crossings already. We had, you know, several transatlantic journeys already, 34 successful transatlantic crossings. And not a single one of these people got an image of the point of ignition of when it went up in flame. It's always like two seconds after. So all of these cameras on it, earlier in the day, there had been planes following it, shadowing it, taking film of it. So there was all of this attention, which I think is by itself a little bit suspicious. But then even more suspicious is this other factor where it's like no one caught that crucial moment. So there's this static spark theory that was selected as the go-to theory, as the historical consensus of what caused it. And the thing that I've been thinking about recently is this guy, Morrison, the one that says, oh, the humanity. <laughs> what you usually hear is part of what he does, which is like a one minute and 30 second clip, right? Of when he sees the event, he becomes increasingly like second by second, increasingly frantic and panicky. And if you know anything about people, especially men in the 1930s, they were much more stoic, right? You hear early recordings, everything's very stoic. There's a very regimented sort of stylistic way of speaking, and very rarely do they deviate from that. 
that's, you know, describing all kinds of disasters. And you could say, you know, he was overcome by the moment, but he really goes into it. He's blubbering in a span of 30 seconds, which is unusual, but let's, you know, maybe he was an emotional guy. He does quickly recover after that. And the thing that's really interesting is that he suggests the static spark theory, right? You know, the ship's hydrogen due to the rain earlier. Like, they had dropped two ropes. Whether or not some spark or something set it on fire, we don't know. Something pulled loose on the inside of the ship. He's suggesting the static spark theory. Mm -hmm. Up until that moment in time, that had never happened before. Right. The electric charge theory was something that this committee that they had assembled produced after they had been, you know, for weeks that took them to cook this thing up. So I find that very suspicious by itself. I think the main thing is that is impossible to deny is the framing. If you look at the coverage of it, the cinema reels that were produced afterward. I think the first time I realized like it really was some kind of hit job on the Zeppelin, I saw this universal reel. Zeppelin explodes, scores dead, and behind the text, they have like this sort of transparent image of a skull. Huh. You know, and it's very ghoulish, especially at that time. This is not, you know... You're talking about really wholesome kinds of content that you would go to the movies and see at this point in time. And to have this, they were really pushing for maximum trauma. And if you listen to the things that they say, it's very propagandistic. Right. And we all have this sort of mental, we have an ear for propaganda now that it's much more sophisticated than you know, someone in the 1930s. This was the first multimedia disaster events in history that was on radio, film, that was covered on site, you know, in the moment. And I'm sure it was traumatizing for the American public at that time. Yes, yes. That's kind of what I was going to say, is we have more sophistication in terms of parsing propaganda now. So when you look at it, in retrospect, it's kind of ham-fisted, but yeah. it very much parallels 9-11. Frame everything correctly, show the disaster, show the burning, and drill it home over and over and over again. And um, yeah, it seems to have been very effective. But you also have another post about atomic dirigibles that takes it all a step further, mentioning that a number of atomic airships could have been linked together permanently and formed an atomic flotilla city we could have had these insane floating hotels in the sky the helium-based blimps already sound pretty amazing but atomic blimps might have been an even bigger level jump it seems yeah for sure so atomic energy has so much potential to it and it's been attacked like nothing else in history you know there's all of these applications atomic ships atomic dirigibles and only very few have been able to escape this anti-atomic energy lobby. You know, they masquerade as environmentalists. But in actuality, if you applied the same level of clean technology 
of engineering and development that we do to coal fire plants or anything else, if we had that level of development applied to nuclear power, it would be as safe as anything now, probably safer than the lithium batteries in Teslas that explode every now and then. Mm -hmm. So this technology is definitely viable, but you know, the media has always attacked it every time it shows up. There were all these different research studies that have been done that show the viability of it. And once you're talking about something that's nuclear powered and it's contained and it's safe and it's efficient, travel costs go down. The kinds of travel that you can do, it changes everything. You can have dirigibles that never have to come down to earth. Hmm. They have enough visible material. You know, you could just, it can go for a year without refueling. So crazy. And that calls into question the major meltdowns we have seen like Chernobyl and these things, might they be part of the same kind of campaign to be like, look how scary this is. You should never touch it. Don't ever go here, even though it largely might be safe. There's a whole industry now of YouTubers that go to Chernobyl and hang out and get footage of it. And it's completely safe. You know, there's these warnings. You shouldn't eat the mushrooms or you shouldn't eat this or that. But people do. People <laughs> capture small game. They eat the mushrooms. They're all fine. The babushkas go and they forage for things. And everyone's fine. There is no harmful effects. It's the same thing that happened with the Fukushima disaster. I've met people that were like fleeing California when that happened <laughs> because they were afraid of the radiation cloud and they were fleeing to South America. There was a lot of hysteria that's created out of nuclear disasters that, you know, it's about as bad as what happened in East Palestine and Ohio. Mm -hmm. You know, there is definite contamination that enters the environment and it needs to be controlled and contained, but it's the level of hysteria that's created out of it. That's a complete media artifact. Yes. That it shouldn't exist. That, that level of fear. It's not real. None of it's real. Yeah. Yeah. We got to question everything that we think we can know and take for granted because it all has to be unpacked and uh, uncovered. And what are your thoughts about radium? Because I recently had Analog here, and I understand you guys know of each other at least, but he considers radium a big key here. If you research radium, you'll quickly find the story of the radium girls who were watchmakers who all got cancer and died. Again, traumatic story pushed to the front of any search results to steer people away from a useful element, but they were breathing in radium dust from grinding down these watch hands day after day. I think any material in that scenario would make workers ill. But have you looked into radium as one of these lost useful materials that might have had similar anti-gravity or airship applications? No, I haven't looked into radium. Yeah, I do know a little bit about it, but I don't know enough to speak on it. But that kind of, that framing is very familiar to me. Yes. <laughs> There's a very specific set of circumstances that cause these girls to get ill, you know, and it's just unsafe industrial conditions, yeah. which happen all the time. Let's look at aluminum factories and fluoride poisoning. 
that's hugely harmful. It's destroyed entire communities, and you hardly ever hear anything about it. You know, we don't have this hysterical reaction to aluminum, but you do with radium. <laughs> dicey, dicey. Yeah, I think those those are great points. I mean, even how our cell phones are made today. A lot of people get sick in the industrial pipeline, but they just don't do it over here anymore. They do it over there, and then they never cover it in the media. But a lot of workers on this planet are dealing with really unsafe working conditions to get us things we use every day. And we have selective outrage over the things that show up on our TV screen on the nightly news, and we ignore or are ignorant of everything else. Well, outrage is a very interesting emotion. It's the most powerful collective emotion that there is. It really is something that builds up over time. It accumulates. And if it's focused properly, it can really change things. Like, you should be outraged that dirigibles were stolen from you, right? If you could focus the public outrage, you could build it up enough, they would be forced to bring these things back or to change the economy. So the way that things are now, there's all of these events that act as sort of outrage heat sinks <laughs> that soak up outrage periodically and direct that store of resentment. That is a very powerful emotion that, <laughs> you know, applied resentment is something that can change history. And it has many times before. But there's all of these sort of, you know, things like microaggressions and, you know, all of these different avenues that they've created to sort of leech resentment into these ways that don't challenge the power structures mm. or the economic structures. Yes. You know, we can get back on the good timeline <laughs> through outrage. And this is one of the reasons I tell people to not really engage with you know, the Twitter timeline too much and try not to watch news media. Because one of the things that they're doing is farming your outrage. They're soaking it up. You, know, you need to store that up and have it unleash organically yeah, rather than artificially or cybernetically. Ugh. Such good points. I'm really glad you laid that out. And I can already tell I've got more questions than we have time for. But let's jump over to another one of your early posts, the island of California. OK, this one starts with the words, the earth is not stable. It shifts and mysteriously changes without warning. Phantom islands vanish, rivers contort and coastlines can radically reconfigure in an instant. California was an island when it was first discovered. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. And this gets into what kind of world this is, really. But let me ask you more broadly to make this case to the people that Earth, as you say, mysteriously shifts and changes without warning. This premise that California was an island is so radical because of the way we think of the Earth as largely settled in place. And Big things like this only happen over millions of years. Help people understand why that line of thinking is incorrect. So I guess people don't realize that what they've been given is a very new idea about the way that the world works. It's called gradualism. And 
pretty much everywhere in the world up until, you know, the beginning of, let's say the middle of the 19th century, the dominant concept of you know, cosmology was catastrophism, was that catastrophes shaped the face of the earth, they shaped history, and the human experience was defined by catastrophe, as was all life on earth. Until the theory of Darwinism gained popularity, gained traction, which demanded these long spans of time for these processes to work. So they had to change the geology. And that's where you get, you know, the theory of plate tectonics and you get these sort of more static, gradualist models of the world. I stumbled on this when I first started reading about Phantom Islands and Phantom Islands that were seen by multiple different ships and the kind of standard idea or view of of a Phantom Island is that you know you have like drunken sailors that are hallucinating these things and that's not really what the historical record shows it shows that you know people are keeping logs these are people that are sometimes, you know, military captains, people that have high standing in society, that have reputations that could really not just damage them, but damage their family. It's really a kind of bizarre claim to say that a captain of a ship of a major venture, either private or military, and more than one, several of them, are hallucinating an entire island. And you look into it and you realize like, you know, there's a lot of other models out there. A lot of my friends believe in the expanding earth model, which affords sudden changes. And then of course there's Velikovsky's sort of cosmology where the planets and, you know, obviously because of the motion of the planets coming closer and farther apart very suddenly, you know, you're going to change the tides, you're going to have geomagnetic effects, and that could result in very swift transformations of the landscape, you know, such as islands disappearing, sinking into the ocean. So there are a lot of different cosmographies and cosmologies that could account for this. And they were pretty much the standard until Darwinism. Hmm. So, I mean, that's where I came into it. But yeah, there's a lot there. There is. There is. And you show many maps that have a completely disconnected California. And you give reports that state the same from all the major explorers of the 1500s that the history books hold up as the best of the best. But when it comes to these reports that California was disconnected in the 1500s, they ignore that aspect of it. As you say, and you write here in this quote that I have, the mainstream story is that motivated by some fantastical romantic vision, all the European cosmography was confused by the tales of one or two adventures. They would have you believe that a century of navigators were liars. You know, what else was lost in the sloppy construction of this paper mache facade? It's like you say, these are serious men who are supposed to be pretty accomplished, but we just think, well, they must have made a mistake there. And it's just some nerd writing a history book who goes and says, well, this, this, and this were right, and then this was wrong. 
and we'll never talk about it again. But you've dug up these maps and it's a very curious thing. What do you think would have caused that change for California to be where it is now? Because also I wanted to say that it is part of the collective consciousness, this whole idea of California breaking off and sinking into the sea. Like there is something to that even today that we might have a collective memory of a different time. But what could have caused such a radical change? So there is definitely evidence that at one time there was an inland sea there. You have Lake Cahulia or the Blake Sea, which is this huge prehistoric saltwater lake stretching across Coachella and the Imperial Valley. You have this sort of massive 19th century storm. It went on for about 40 days from 1861 to early 1862. And they they describe it, they call it an atmospheric river, which to me sounds like (laughs) the heavens opened up, basically, and water poured down. Yeah. But what happened was it turned this whole area into, you know, it was all underwater. And this was only, you know, 180 years ago, 160 years ago that this happened. So this is within, you know, our own cultural memory, but it's not something that's, you know, associated with that. But has it happened before? So you have all of these Indian legends and myths that describe a tidal wave coming in, sweeping houses away, all of these different legends about the thunderbird and the whale fighting each other. So basically what they're describing is a huge storm and tectonic shifts, you know, all like these huge beings are fighting each other and causing these earthquakes and floods. But yeah, if you look at the actual ethnographic record of the West Coast Indians along the Oregon coast and that whole area, all of them have stories that say there was a big flood Here's one I'll read. There was a big flood before the white man's time, a huge tidal wave that struck the Oregon coast not too far back in time. The ocean rose up and huge waves swept and surged across the land. Trees were uprooted and villages were swept away. So when he says before the white man's time, he probably means before major settlement. And it's definitely possible some of these earlier explorers witnessed California in this state. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of indication that this could happen, even Mm -hmm. with our our current models. Yes. And I wanted to also ask you just about phantom islands that have vanished. I've heard about Friesland, which is kind of on some maps up near Norway and Iceland and Greenland. There was this other island called Friesland. It even had, I believe, some bullet-pointed towns and maybe even some named rivers. And then it's just not on maps anymore. And that's really the only example I know, but I'm always intrigued by the prospect of land that they've either kept off of maps or is on old maps and isn't there anymore. The Perry Reese map that shows Antarctica with no ice, always fascinating. You never know what's real and what's not. I mean, Anyone can make a map of Middle Earth and then say, well, this is a 5,000-year-old map or some weird stuff like that. So you can't hang your hat on 
every individual map, but in aggregate, they add up to some puzzling mysteries. What about other phantom islands that might have vanished that you know about? There's a few different ones. There's Demon Island off of Nova Scotia, the Devil Island, that a lot of people had reports off that it's right off the coast. So there's all of these stories and reports about it, the Devil Island, and there being you know, some kind of creatures that live there that were not human. Oh. And that island completely vanished. So that's a really interesting one. I don't have my notes on it in front of me right here, but that's one I have looked into. Damn. <laughs> yeah, that had a lot of reporting on it. Like, you know, you're talking about something near the coast, not in the middle of the Atlantic, mm -hmm. that somehow vanished. And this was a curious line that I hoped you could elaborate on, but you write, there are many more mysteries found in this region, you know, the area of California and the space between it and the mainland, including the possibility that Cibola and Cuvara, two of the mythical seven cities of gold, truly existed in one form or another. What's the story there? Yeah, if you look at a lot of these reports, there were credible reports of people finding evidence that there were cities there, that there were maybe not cities of gold, but advanced civilizations that existed there. If you look at just some of the reports of the islands that were supposed to exist in this inland sea of California, the people that lived on those islands were said to have advanced technology. And actually, they didn't look like, you know, they were giants, they were bigger than normal Indians, and they had pale skin and colored hair. So there's definitely a lot there as far as the potential for an entire history or prehistory of the Americas that has been completely suppressed. And you see a lot of these reports in the early Spanish explorers seem to get a lot more information out of the locals than some of the later explorers, some, like the Anglos, for example. The English really didn't have that same rapport. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because there had already been, you know, enough conflict at that time later on that they're not going to be getting any good information after a certain point. That relationship had soured. Right, right. You do go pretty deep into what is described as an island of giants between the California island and the mainland. And then you have some other posts that get into the history of the explorers interacting with giants, people like Americo Vespucci and Ferdinand Magellan, big names. They wrote about these interactions in great detail. And you say, kind of again, like we talked about, the narrative is that the majority of early explorers were somehow deceived that they saw the giants from a distance and exaggerated their size due to a trick of perspective. But that is an absurd supposition. As these journals detail, explorers were often in very close contact with these giants, conversing through signs, dining with them, fighting them, kidnapping them. There is this projected cartoon of the 15th century spellbound manlet that had never seen a tall person before. But explorers were often some of the fittest sailors, knights, and gentlemen. Heights of six feet would not be uncommon. Even more perversely, we see the diseased minds of modern historians 
psychologizing the testimony of these men, a task they are dreadfully ill-equipped to fulfill. <laughs> yeah, that is something that I always ran across. It's like, these guys are historians. You know, let's be honest, most, most people in the humanities, you know, they call it the dreadful science. You know, it's really not science. It's a narrative. It's something that, you know, you're supporting a sort of greater regime narrative is really what you're doing. You're a toady. Mm -hmm. It's not real science. Pretty much everybody knows that. They're reading old books. Very few of them are doing original research. And then on top of all that, even though they don't have degrees in psychology, which I don't even believe in psychology, most of it's ridiculous, but these guys just take it upon themselves to start psychologizing the experience of these people. Like they're going to successfully somehow model the way that these people saw the world after they have gone from elementary school to middle school to high school straight into university and then became professors and got tenure. And they've lived inside of the academy their entire lives. You know, who have they even met? Who could that guy even successfully model as far as like put his theory of mind, put himself in the shoes of some other person? Could he even do it to like the guy that fixes his car? You know, could he <laughs> probably not, but he's going to presume to do that to these early explorers, which are a type of human being that most academics will never encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are really great points. It's like we have weak academic men with contempt for strong adventuring men yeah and their ego allows them to rewrite the story as they see fit and when you're talking about centuries of time who knows how often that occurred and shaped the narrative but why would this aspect of history be such a secret 11 foot tall people are interesting but why must that be suppressed do you think where might that line of inquiry lead the best way to illustrate this is to look at the early world's fairs where they had this sort of timeline set up where you had the small, diminutive, primitive man, you know, the sort of pygmies and people living in the jungle, things like that. And then it, there was this sort of linear progression that culminates in the industrial European man. And that's morphed over time and it's become something quite different. But that general linear progression from the primitive caveman to industrial technological man is sort of the founding mythology of our civilization. And if you look at the level of sophistication you know, not just their size, but all kinds of things that these people had. That kind of theory of evolution doesn't really make sense. You're looking at people that were hardier, that had very good dexterity. They were, you know, in many ways, defied the current theory of evolution and the founding mythologies. I think that's one of the main reasons. And also, it reaffirms biblical scriptural history mm. as well. Because a lot of these, if you look at 
Native American in North and South America, the mythology surrounding giants are very similar to old world mythologies about giants. They're sort of related to stories of the giants becoming kind of cannibalistic, of them being something that was like intermixed or from a previous period of creation and that they were punished by the gods or that they all drowned in a huge flood event. Mm -hmm. And by the early sort of antiquarians in America drew these parallels a lot. A lot of the early ethnographers and antiquarians and historians that were looking at the mounds in North America noticed that you know, there was all these parallels to the Bible. And I think that's another reason why academia kind of wanted to the kibosh on that. Mm-hmm. I agree. You cite in your work in a lot of other areas when someone is an atheist and they're a, an important figure in crafting a part of mythology in their sector. You just make note of it. And I also have kind of come around to the idea that the atheist movement in the 90s had an agenda and so many things want to take us away from that as much as possible, remove spirituality, have us worshiping at the altar of science with the priest class of the white lab coat and all that. I mean, it's really not arbitrary. And tall people, giants might seem like a weird thing to suppress from our current perspective. But when you're crafting a narrative for people, it's very important to suppress things that counteract that narrative that were more accepted in their day. So it's not arbitrary from the point that you're talking about where the World's Fairs start, this industrial man is being crafted, and uh, that mythology, it would be a big wrench in it to be like, well, there were bigger, stronger, more robust people that aren't included in this timeline and this uh, trajectory of man. But, you know, obviously it has a role. And I think if you pull on that thread, more and more weird things start to unravel. And this kind of speaks to one of them. You have another great post called Empire of the Skinwalker, and it's interesting for several reasons. I mean, you show how Stonehenge is very much manipulated. Cranes were used to rearrange the stones in 1901. Then there was more, quote unquote, preservation work done in 1914, and virtually every stone was removed off-site, then re-erected, repositioned according to an esoteric agenda and embedded in concrete between 1901 and 1964. So that's one major interesting thing in this post, but what's more interesting is all the megalithic stone circles that were in place before they were toppled or destroyed by the Christians. You say of an estimated 50,000 megaliths, only 10,000 remain today. These large, impressive stones would have been everywhere, emanating an air of mystery, occasionally sparking off with druid fire and plasmoids. There are no meaningful theories that I could find. No one thinks about it. And that's well said. I am curious about these stone circles as a technology and how they might generate energy or have more usefulness in a plasma universe context, maybe a technology of the giants, maybe devices that facilitated contact with plasma beings. What do you think? Let's start from perception, right? People have this idea of a you know an objective reality and that really is just a sort of theory a concept because we have our organs of perception and they really don't reveal any kind of objective reality you can walk down your own neighborhood walk down a city street 
a hundred times and not see some hidden little building or doorway that could lead you to something very interesting. But if you just have a different vibe that day, you put yourself into a different kind of mode of perception, you'd be amazed at the things that you can see that are around in your neighborhood that you've just walked by every single day. And you scale that up to an age of discovery, to people establishing narratives for the new world or for their own countries. And you start to see the way that something that's very obvious if you have one model of reality can be completely concealed. So there's this one idea that the Atlanteans, after or some kind of precursor civilization, after it was destroyed or it fell, they sent out emissaries all over the world to kind of restart civilization. Mm-hmm. And they brought various technologies with them. This is a sort of, you can do a comparative mythology study, and it's pretty well established that some event like this did happen in the past. And part of that was the stone, the Cyclopean architecture that you see all over the world. And you can look at that as a sort of, you know, an astrotheological computer, like a global system that would show you, like would reveal a sort of hidden history to the world just by mapping it out and putting it all together. And some people have been trying to do that. And that whole thing gets wiped off the map when they try to tell you that the dolmens and the anomalous stone structures in North America were caused by glaciers. Like the glaciers built these dolmens somehow. Even though no one's ever seen a glacier build a dolmen, they just say it. So now you have huge pieces of that puzzle missing, of that model of reality, and it just doesn't work because now you have this cultural blindness to this astrotheological machine that was erected by this precursor civilization. So you have one world that's enchanted with this legacy, this mythology that has been prepared for you. And then you have this other sort of disenchanted world where they just make these bizarre claims that don't have anything supporting them. They're just saying things. But because they have the media and they all you know agree with each other, they create this sort of Freemasonry, this Freemasonry of mediocrity where they push this disenchanted view of reality and get people to accept it. No, no, those are just random rocks. Hmm. Yes, yes. Okay. I I don't know if that came across correctly or not. I'm not I'm not sure, but <laughs> No, well, I think it's important context for sure, but I do think that there's something else to be said about these stone circles as a technology when you restore the plasma context and the reason I talked about your work on Stonehenge is because of this radical reconstruction. So they maybe they break the technology, put it back together and say, look at what the ancients did several thousand years ago. Oh, they were the Druids and all this. And that's a whole thread that gets into British history and the Druids and what they wanted to establish. But what's more intriguing is what kind of technology this could have been itself. To add a little more context, you say this theme which is often repeated in regard to the Fae, is reminiscent of David Politis' formula. 
boulders or other large stone formations associated with water. According to Politis, many strange, unexplained disappearances are densely correlated with such features. In indigenous folklore, water is often linked with ancient stone circles or certain insoled stones. For example, the fishermen on the Isle of Skye washed reverenced stones they called story people to improve the weather conditions. As far back as ancient Mesopotamia, certain rituals were held to purify stones. These rituals normally included submerging the stones in water, along with such purification items as cedar, salt, and tamarisk. Thus consecrated, the stones were then made into necklaces, which were worn until illnesses were cured. Wow, just a lot of strange details. But do you think these stone circles, stones maybe have a lot of qualities, but these stone circles maybe were gateways or communication devices with these plasma beans, these Magonians, perhaps we talked about last time? Yeah, you could think of it as a portal, or you could think of it as sort of changing the field of probability in an area where it's more probable that you're going to see visual evidence of the electrodynamic ecology that's all around us. You're going to see electrodynamic entities appear in front of you because it seems there needs to be certain kinds of a certain set of circumstances, right? Like on you know such and such a day, the planets have to be aligned, the stars have to be in this position, and then you see this phenomenon. You see the fae, you see the the will-o'-wisps appear. And I think there's a couple different ways you can look at it, like a portal to another dimension, but it's to me it's more that the stone warps the field of probability and allows them to manifest and allows you to perceive them. Mm. Because there's a lot of things that have to sort of lock into each other. You know, people can look at something. If you're in the wrong sort of perceptual mode, you can look right at something that doesn't fit into your model of reality and just tune it out. You might just see a flash of light and then you'll just, no, that's not there. That can't be real. And then there's other levels of sort of amping that up, sort of warping the probability, the field of probability in that area where you go into it, you go into that experience, and it's not just a will-o'-wisp or you know, a ball of light of electricity, of like a plasmoid, and it's some sort of indefinite shape. It actually starts to communicate with you and take on shape and form, and it starts to look like something, maybe humanoid or maybe some kind of chimera, depending on, you know, the personality of the energy. Hmm. So, yeah, I suppose you can think of it as a portal to another dimension. I think of it more as sort of, you know, perceptual modes and a sort of field of probability. Like, there's another way to explain this. If you've ever noticed when you have stories of people having visions or reaching higher levels of consciousness, they always go into, into the cave, they go into the wasteland, they go into the desert. Because what they're doing is they're manifesting a different field of probability. If you went out into an area where there's no one else around, there's no one else organizing their intention and sort of bringing things down into the baseline circle of mundanity, and you go out into these areas, 
you can have all kinds of sort of spectacular, rare events. UFOs, you can see all kinds of things that, let's say if you were with a big group of people, you're not going to have that same experience. Mm. So what the stone circle does is it creates that, it has that same effect of a sort of rarefied field of probability, but in a, a more organized setting. So in a way, you can think of it as a portal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that was explained well. So there's one more log on the electroplasma fire. I want to try to squeeze into what we can call the first hour. But you have one other great early post that might relate to giants, biology, and the real forces of our reality that have been suppressed. And that is Arcadia in the electro field. You write about two scientists that were exhibiting their work on an old TV show in the 1980s. They had brought back to life some ancient fungus-like organisms by exposing them to an electrostatic field. Then they showed the same thing with ferns, basically bringing back a type of fern that we only see in fossils. They also did experiments with rainbow trout that when exposed to the field grew three times larger and looked more primordial with red gills and stronger jaws. And you say that the SIBA group checked the discoveries of its scientists, patented the process, and immediately stopped further research. That's something we've heard here before. But what do you think these guys were on to, and what does it say about this world? It says that, I think that the, what I call the electromagnetic ecology, has changed over time. You may have heard about giant dragonflies and megafauna existing in the past and there's a lot of theories about you know there's less oxygen but i think probably what has changed is the electromagnetic ecology the sort of the cosmic system has i don't want to say degraded but yeah that's pretty much what it is there's more entropy in the system at this point and things are shrinking and becoming you know a little bit i guess sort of trying to conserve energy because there's less ambient energy in the system is a kind of simplified way of thinking about it. And what the electrofield technology does essentially is it reintroduces a sort of primitive, you know, a more primordial electromagnetic situation at the moment of conception or at the moment of germination. And you could definitely use this technology on humans. Right, right. You actually say that here. I was going to read this. It it speaks to obviously the possibility of radical change based on the electrostatic environment and that genes are less important to isolate and swap in and out. But it's more of a symbiotic relationship between DNA genes and the electro environment. And the quote is, imagine humans after a few generations breeding in the electrostatic field. What strange powers and abilities long disused might be unlocked. Unique traits crushed under eons of various orthodoxies, purged by the decrepit priestcrafts of Egypt and Atlantis as they reach the end of their respective eras, eager to obscure those divine endowments that made the shallowness of their sophisterates apparent. There is nothing stopping us from using this technology, despite the almost total blackout on the subject. There are a few garage scientists uploading videos to YouTube 
and proving the electrofield works. This technology is being developed by Russian and Chinese scientists now. Man, lost technology held back only by what we think is possible seems to be the theme of the day, but elaborate on how you think this mechanism could explain some of the radical descriptions from Atlantis, perhaps, or even giants. And what could you say about any work going on today that you have seen? So at the moment that European explorers were encountering giants all over the world, giants were already in decline, according to you know, local legends and ethnographies. They were already sort of dying out. And I think it's just, it's decline of the giants is part of this, this change in the electromagnetic ecology. So if you changed that environment, you know, you did it willfully, I'm sure you could produce these more archaic forms of humans, you know, larger, more robust. And I would have to say, as far as the, I have my friends on Twitter that are, that are more into this than I am, that are experimenting with different things like this with electromagnetism and uh, Tesla technology. But yeah, a lot of farmers, especially in France, seem to be using this technology and have been using this technology for, I think, an uninterrupted span. There's been no point where they haven't been developing it. I have a couple of links up on the Schwab stack about people using what they call electroculture. It's a whole community of people growing things. Wow. Yeah, all it really is, is sort of they're creating a sort of natural static electric field, which existed in the past, and I guess, sort of reinstantiating it, you know, artificially. Well, it's like what Tesla said about everything being vibration and frequency and electricity. It's really just, it is like a radio dial, I suppose. Yeah. And it's like you're tuning into a different density, a different frequency of the primeval vital impetus. <laughs> so you have like some guy like Henry Bergson, he was what they call a vitalist. And he had this idea of evolution that was, it was a spiritual idea of evolution. He called it creative evolution. There's this quote, he says, this impetus sustained right along the lines of evolution among which it gets divided is the fundamental cause of variations at least of those that are regularly passed on that accumulate and create new species. So he had this theory of this sort of, this moment of creation that is God sort of speaking reality into being. And from that comes this line of the Elan Vital. And all of the different forms of life are sort of tessellations of that original line of creation extending from the beginning of time so you have to imagine there's like a main highway a central pillar that you can realign yourself to and i think that's what this technology can do i think it can like it sort of pulls you back under the you know if you imagine that we're in a giant terrarium <laughs> there's the heat lamp that's sort of keeping a certain part of the terrarium basically idenic it's in its most optimal state, but we've sort of, in this timeline, we've kind of drifted apart due to entropy. Mm. But yeah, 
there's definitely ways back to the good timeline, like I said before. <laughs> I love that. And it's true that we are in a, a degraded state, and it's largely because of the way that the uh, rulers of this world have steered it. They want us to be weak and dumb. And thus, over time, we've become weaker and dumber. You even have the suggestion that that might be partly where the giants went. We know that a lot of them died out in big battles or were wiped out in these big battles or maybe the flood thing. But you also suggest that perhaps the importing of a European diet stunted the growth of what were left over a few generations. And I hadn't considered that, but I do find it plausible. Uh, okay, so there's a couple things about that. If you look at the original Pigafetta, he talks about the giants living on raw flesh and whole foods, not even bothering to skin animals. So, you, you know, you think about whole food, that's whole, right? So our sort of squeamishness about animals and like eating all of it, eating the whole thing. Yeah, the liver. Liver, all of the organs, the brain, all of the different parts. That's definitely something that's completely been engineered and yeah just a sign of decadence and weirdness the fact that every animal every single predator in the world goes straight straight for the internal organs after they complete a hunt because that's the most nutrient dense area of the creature and that we're and we're just only eating muscle meat like that's a huge sign that we've sort of diverged from the path. And there's all of these signs that once the giants were fed like the food that the Europeans brought with them, they instantly got sick and started to decline. And a lot of them were like kidnapped and taken to be display. paraded around on display. That's right. Yeah. But they would die because they couldn't survive the journey. They couldn't adapt to this really decadent, degraded diet that we live on. I think that's another reason why they sort of suppress the actual reality of the lives of some of these people, of you know, races of giants and things like that, because of the way they lived was like exactly plugged in. Their size, the way they looked was, you know, you can see the kinds of food that they ate and the way they lived and you see why they were so robust mm -hmm. there's also some studies as well of nutrition and physical degradation especially you know early on when people were first studying like in the age of discovery the age of colonization they were looking at the effects like when we would come across a sort of primitive tribe of sugar and food you know, processed foods on these tribes and what would happen. And there's a lot of a big supply of information about that. That's not controversial. So here's this quote from one of Columbus's scribes that he had. So Columbus seems to be, no, I think Columbus wrote this himself, actually. This was from his journal. Columbus seems to be aware that the cure for influenza was a change of terrain and fresh meat. So this is him writing back to the king and queen. So you will tell their highness that the people here, when we arrived, 
were not for the greater part suddenly ill and suffering. Furthermore, as we have seen, those who went inland to explore, most of them fell ill and had to return. We were afraid that the same was to happen to those now healthy. These people are convalescing promptly because they only feel well in the lands of certain chieftains. It is true that if they had fresh meat to help convalesce, they would be standing up quickly with God's help, and most of them have recovered entirely by this time. So you have this narrative that there were plagues of influenza, but if you read the original documentation and reporting from people that were there, they say it's because of them being enslaved, them being underfed, uh, being moved to different areas, and a lack of fresh food, a lack of fresh meat. So that's a big part of it as well, the nutrition aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is still in play today. Now we call it exporting the American diet, all the corporate food around the world. And we look at the effects on the Philippines and other areas that have erected KFCs and Burger Kings, and it ain't good. So, you know, scale that back to a different time. And I think it also makes sense. And Carnivore Aurelius has taught me much. And he's right on this kind of path as well. But man, so as we're coming to the end of the line, I'm going to quote the author's note at the end of that post. Free listeners won't have the context of all the previous Metacosmos talk, but I think they can figure it out. You say, the next step will be to build our own Metacosmos of our own design. To this end, I will be focusing more on suppressed technology and history, dirigibles, giants, and hidden lands. I will be exploring pseudo-histories, myths, underground civilizations, and Atlantis. We will be developing our own chronology and getting back to the good timeline. I love it. Clearly, this whole interview is a sort of preview to that exact trajectory that you want to take, and it's the stuff I enjoy most. Elaborate on this lofty goal and really just your future plans for the Substack before we go. Yeah, I did really feel as I was finishing this article, what you said about taking things away from people. <laughs> and I do want to kind of give back or create and generate an alternative, you know, or at least be a part of that process. I obviously can't do it by myself, but I do want to push for and make my own product be something that does secure enchantments for my audience that the direction of pseudo-histories, for one, is very interesting to me. I, I've looked at this before, and I have this suspicion that a lot of pseudo-histories can be proven. You know, I can look at some of these traditions of Atlantis or, you know, Arthurian legends, or even, you know, Agartha, for example, and find ways into that universe that there are like portals, there are documents, there's a comparative mythology case. There's all of these different ways that you can establish the reality of these so-called pseudo-histories. So yeah, we can find our way to the ruins of Atlantis. We can develop our own chronology because the chronology that was there, you know, it doesn't lead to the good timeline. So if we just create our, we reorganize this chronology that, you know, that we can establish with our own histories that we develop, with our own fiction as well, we can sort of re-enchant the timeline. 
And that's, yeah, that's my goal right now. I love it. Wow. Well, Schwab, once again, I had a great time. I've said before to people who really enjoy this show that I'm really just a talent scout of sorts. I have no primary work, but I think I'm good at finding the ones who do it best. And you are on the top shelf, man. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I had a great time, man. Thank you. Great. Well, you know, I find a lot of great people, but of course they have to agree to come on to complete the circuit. So I appreciate it very much. Swabstack.substack.com is where the writing can be found and at Real Human Schwab on Twitter is where communication can be facilitated. Anything else to add? No, that's it. That's all my information. Great. You can find me on Twitter. I do Twitter spaces where I bring some of my friends on and a lot of people that are in my circle have different ways of describing like the things that I'm talking about. They're sort of along the ride with me. And it sometimes helps to participate in that because there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different angles that are supplied by some of these guys that some ways that are really good for helping to complete you know, your understanding of some of these ideas and these concepts. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's where I'll find my next great guest. Yep. I'll definitely have to tune in. But yeah, keep up the great work, man. Cheers to getting to the good timeline. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you very much. Take me home, country roads, returning to the well of Schwab because we know the water satisfies the thirst. <laughs> and a big thanks again to Damn My Eyes for that version of the intro song. I like it. I like it a lot. If you have a musical forte, send me your own version at thehiresidechats at gmail.com. But as I've said before, very happy to have found Schwab. Glad he got enough good feedback to do it again. And I expect him to be a prominent figure in the counterculture for quite some time. As I said, I think one of my few talents is I know how to pick them. And I can produce great episodes when the talent is willing to do so. I'm looking at you, Miles Mathis and Robert Seffer. I'm looking at you. <laughs> but even just since the time we recorded this, Schwab put out a great post called The Super Spectral Ecology, and he kicks it off with a great quote that speaks to exactly the sort of thing I was getting at in the second hour by bringing up Diana Pasolka's American Cosmic and some of her conclusions. But as the great Jacques Vallée said, the phenomenon, meaning the UFO phenomenon, is a meta-system, not a bunch of spacecraft. It adapts to its environment like the cinema does. Think of the movie industry as a meta-system. We just need to find the projector. Mm-mm-mm, good stuff. So do check out the Schwab stack. You will not be disappointed. I'm personally a subscriber, so I'm not sure where posts might cut off for non-subscribers or which ones are free and which ones are paid. But if you're a THC fan, I don't suspect there's any better Substack to be subscribed to. He kills it and he deserves to make a living doing this. I'm really glad we could spend some time on those earlier posts of his. The airship stuff is really great, as is the island of California. And both posts benefit greatly from the visual reference. And in fact, the next THC you'll hear is 
the result of a deep dive I did after Schwab's first appearance when he brought up the book Cold War Anthropology and its author, David Price. It's pretty good. He certainly knows his material well, but he is also a liberal progressive academic, and that comes with its own viewpoint on some things. But yes, as we started out today, we did go pretty deep on the Hindenburg Post, but we didn't really outline all the reasons it's suspicious or what would have caused the fire, because I looked at the time and I just wanted to make sure we could get to some of the other stuff on the outline. So I kind of pushed it along, but as he said, the Hindenburg had gone back and forth over 30-plus times. It didn't warrant this gaggle of media awaiting its arrival. And here's just a bit more about it from his post. So the former head of the Zeppelin Company, as well as the commander of the Naval Air Station at Lakehurst, and the captain of the Hindenburg, all three suspected sabotage, as well as most of the surviving crew. He also noted that more than 20 years after the explosion, the airship surviving Captain Max Pruss was telling interviewers he believed the cause was sabotage. And I had always heard that the real story behind the story was that it was hit with an incendiary round, which would half explain why no footage of the moment the fire started has ever been shown despite all the media present. Obviously, I don't know much about the mechanics of these airships, so it is probably best to just use the term sabotage. It covers quite a bit of ground. But in retrospect, when you examine the details of the story, it fits so well with other events we know of now. The motive is there. And I've always thought this was an interesting story that pretty much goes overlooked. But Schwab takes those implications to the nth degree, and that's important. If you remember, we did a couple shows on the Hindenburg back in the day, the main one being an episode with a fella named Kenneth M. Price Jr., who reached out after the John Hamer show about the Titanic, and he had worked in the oil industry for many years. I believe he was an engineer as well, and he thought there was something suspicious with all this. It was a really good episode that always stuck with me, and get this. I just looked it up to see when it was, having really no idea. It could have been any time, but it happened to come out on March 31st of 2017, six years to the exact day, which to me is the universe telling us we're onto something, but man, so strange. What else is there to say? Schwab makes for a great dance partner, and I'm glad to get this out at the end of March because April's going to be a bit precarious. I just know that I can't focus as much as usual. It's cross-country moving month, but I am going to give you the best shows I can, and things will be much more normalized on the other side, I'm sure. Also, I got a ton of great responses to the lead-in-the-water conundrum that I'm dealing with. Why is there lead in the water of a brand new construction house with a brand new well when the well water tests clean? Hmm. Well, I'll spare you all the details, but basically the THC audience is spread far and wide, and I had about a dozen quality responses that confirmed the couple of places that I had narrowed things down to. Responses from people who have great credentials in this area, including the wife of someone who works for the Florida Health Department. 
It's crazy how many THC fans are out there in the world, and I guess our eyes are everywhere. <laughs> so I'm just pleasantly surprised that when I asked for advice on such a specific issue, something I really don't ever really like to do, the audience is large enough that some heavy hitter experts were able to give me added insight and confirm the suspicions. Long story short, I think we replaced a few faucets and all is well, and the deal is going to go through. But because the timeline got changed and we had to move back the closing, which means we had to move back the pod, which means we had to move back the cross-country drive, all the planning I did is out of whack, and I have to try to reschedule most of the guests I have on deck, and we'll just see how that goes. But at least I got you a killer episode before the storm truly rolls in for me. Subscribe to his Substack. Check out his Twitter spaces. If you're unfamiliar with that format, it's basically a Q&A kind of podcast-like structure. All done live through Twitter whenever he feels the itch. I don't think he has a schedule for it, but keep an eye out. And if you feel you aren't getting enough THC, I hope you're a Plus member, because we go deeper in the second hour each and every time. Today we talked about Joseph Scalinger and chronology creation, the Metacosmos superorganism, what it would look like if Tolkien had created a religion after writing his fiction like L. Ron Hubbard, dangers of the ironic imagination, occult machinations, effectiveness in the Twilight Mind, Science fiction's effect on military intelligence, parsing the shaver mystery in Hollow Earth literature, and so much more. Man, Schwab's Metacosmos post is complex and super dense and thorough, but it was good to talk about. He makes a lot of points that are often overlooked when it comes to the function of fiction and artificial world building. And I'm in total agreement about his point that we should get out more, explore and investigate more. The primary function of material reality is experience, and I think that experience should be vast, varied, and fully embraced. Break up your routine in radical ways. Go forth and live, damn it. Shed the shallow distractions of our time that hijack your system to simulate artificial adventure. This is a spirit I totally used to embrace more. In early episodes, I would say to guests all the time, well, if this area is really an interest to the inner earth, let's just go. Or, when I get some money, we're going to fly over Antarctica and see what's what. Uh, you know, some things are more realistic than others, but I wanted to see myself and the audience engage in more field work, basically. The evidence for that is still there in an atrophied forum thread called the THC Explorers Club. I built it, but they didn't come. <laughs> The joint sessions shows, as rare as they are, were also designed to be built of messages from listener experience and little stories from your own adventures. Although most of my messages are just praise and compliments, and as thankful as I am, I don't know who wants to hear that. Besides my mom, of course. But let's light that spark again. I'm about to move across the country. I'm excited to check out places like Coral Castle and all the sites of interest on the other side of the country. And you should be going forth in your own life, too. But speaking of getting out, let's look at the meetup calendar at HiresideMeetups.com and see where THC fans are congregating over the next few weeks. 
Tomorrow, April 1st, we have the Conspiracy Theorizers at the High Springs Brewing Company in High Springs, Florida. April 8th, the Stay Golden event in Sedona, Arizona at the Sundower Bar and Grill. April 15th, the Ticknall Walk in Ticknall, Derby, United Kingdom. And April 20th, the LA Truth Meetup at Flame International. So at least two of those four are recurring, and that's a beautiful thing to see. I wish we had more than four for the whole month of April, but if you feel the energy well enough, just make an event with a few weeks' notice. Decide on any place that you think is interesting to you locally, or just hang out and support a local business. And other THC fans will show up, and you'll expand your network just like that. Nothing interesting ever happens at home, people. Get out in the world. I hear a lot of good feedback from these meetups. If you heard the Mount Shasta event Q&A on the Plus Member bonus content page, someone in that crowd mentioned and joined the meetups, if you need proof. (laughs) Trust but verify and all that. But I hope and expect Schwab to be buried in an avalanche of digital praise this week. Let him have it. Real Human Schwab on Twitter. I'm getting out of here. So many boxes to pack and so little time. Take care of you and yours. Adventure awaits. I've done my part. Your move, airship annihilators, giant people suppressors, and entities of the electromagnetic ecology. Your When I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk Processed stuff that makes you fat Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry Don't tell me, don't tell me lies Discipline is no fun, I find Denial makes it all technology and every now and then I try to quit and leave